This is InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's what's happening on this week's show. Are school reformers getting stuck in yesterday's ideas? How can we improve our nation's schools? From 1933 until 2008, we spent more money per kid every single year than we did the year before. That's three generations. And the result is we've got schools that don't spend money very wisely. Then, do you really know what's in the food you eat? The startling answers might surprise you. Go back home, look in your pantry, and here are some of the ingredients. Here are some of the things I want you to look for. And then teach them why are these the things that you want to avoid in your diet. And more importantly, what do you want to add into your diet? Those two stories and much more are heading your way on this week's edition of InfoTrack. Stick around. The show gets underway right after this. InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's your host, Chris Whitting. The debate over education reform seems to be an endless one. But is there common ground that opponents can agree on to improve our nation's school systems? InfoTrack's Roy Mackey is here to find out. Roy? Thank you, Chris. We're joined by Frederick Hess, a resident scholar and director of education policies at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also the author of several books on education, and he writes a blog that appears in the newspaper Education Week. Congress continues to dish out more money to education, but you've been sounding the alarm on the need to improve school productivity and spend school dollars more wisely and efficiently. Tell us about that. Sure. We all believe that education is probably the most important thing public agencies do, states, local, federal government. And one of the ways we've been showing this is from 1933 until 2008, we spent more money per kid every single year than we did the year before. That's three generations. On the one hand, that's been a terrific and profound statement of the value we place on education. Other hand, the problem is it has created a culture where we don't make hard decisions, where we don't make hard choices where we try to do everything in addition to everything we're already doing. And the result is that we've got schools that don't spend money very well and don't spend money very wisely. You write about the insistence on keeping the same standards and protocols for every school and that that has gotten in the way of innovation and quality. You know, it's real simple. If you're trying to staff a high school in uh, New York City, You've got a very different labor market you're working in than if you're trying to do that same school in rural Oklahoma or downstate Indiana. You're going to have different needs in terms of how difficult it is to find science teachers. You're going to find online instruction more or less useful. And rather than try to write rules which suggest that every school ought to operate and be staffed in the same way, we ought to ensure that schools are tapping tools and talent and technology in ways that are going to serve their kids best. And how would you grade the federal initiatives, No Child Left Behind, and Race to the Top in terms of their overall effects? I'd say both suffer from similar maladies, that they both took good and valuable ideas. No Child Left Behind brought accountability to America's schools in a way that had not previously been the case. And Race to the Top gave states the political cover to take smart steps in terms of making it easier to build useful data systems to create room for more charter schools. But I think both also dramatically overstepped. They were both insensitive to the limits of what the federal government can do well. No Child Left Behind wound up pushing states to adopt 
troubling accountability systems and ludicrous remedies to schools that were labeled as low-performing. And Race to the Top has wound up spending a lot more time and energy rewarding states that could find good grant writers than it did states that were actually changing the game. In the drive to reform education, I think everyone says that's a great thing to do. But as a reformer yourself, tell us a little bit about how there are some roadblocks. People will say, yes, reform, but don't touch this or don't touch that. Sure. No, that's a terrific point. There's really two kinds of mistakes that get commonly made. One is that many folks think efforts to rethink schooling is the same thing as an attack on public schools. To talk of paying effective teachers more than ineffective teachers, to talk about changing control of a school system so that it goes from the school board to a mayor, these things are often labeled as attacks on schooling. I think that's nuts. The arrangements we have in place may or may not have made sense when they were adopted. The question is, how do we organize schooling that serves kids today? The flip side of the problem, though, is that because many reformers are so emotionally invested and so insistent on making short-term dramatic movement (laughs) in test scores occur, that they often recoil from a more fundamental effort to ask, is it really enough to just give teachers a bonus because our kids' test scores go up? Is this really all that we mean by reform of teacher pay? So what happens is often good ideas get whipsawed between folks, including particularly the teacher unions who are resistant to any change, and reformers who are in such a rush to shove change forward that they don't actually have the time or inclination to think about are these thoughtful and sensible moves. Our guest on InfoTrack is Frederick Hess, a resident scholar and director of education policies at the American Enterprise Institute. He's a proponent of reforming the nation's education system. So, Frederick, let's talk about some practical ideas here. If you were going to pick maybe two or three of the biggest things that would make the most dramatic improvements in our nation's education system, what would they be? I think one is to start thinking differently about the teaching job. Right now, we've got about 3.3, 3.4 million teachers who all do more or less a variation of the same job every day. That makes it real hard to take advantage of teachers who are specially skilled, and it puts far too much weight on teachers who aren't very good at their work. So to start rethinking that job description, whether that means making it easier for non-professional educators to come in and teach high school science with the kind of support and training they need on a a one-hour-a-day basis, whether that means being more creative about using distance learning to pipe in one-on-one tutoring into schools, whether that means rethinking elementary school teaching assignments so that the best reading teacher in fourth grade is teaching all of those kids reading, rethinking this notion that every classroom is a closed cell in which that teacher is going to make learning happen come hell or high water for those 24 kids. Second thing is, I think, to bring the same kind of rethinking to the school. It's not clear to me that the answer to serving at-risk kids in high school who were disaffected is to try to come up with a school model which is going to make them feel better about showing up at a building they don't want to be each day. There's all kinds of other ways to address this challenge. It might be something that looks like a ROTC program that's actually not based at a school building at all. It might involve some version of what Mike Goldstein up at Boston has called the Starbucks School, which is a highly motivated tutor meeting with five or six kids every day at Starbucks, just taking school out of the picture and helping these kids get their GED. But the second is to stop assuming that the schoolhouse 
is the right answer for each and every kid. And a third solution is to start to give parents more incentive and leeway to make cost-conscious decisions. Right now, if you're a parent and you actually aren't real taken with your child's foreign language teacher, or you don't think Spanish or French are necessarily the languages of the 21st century, you're pretty much stuck. You either have the money at home to purchase a license to Rosetta Stone for your child so that they might learn Arabic or Mandarin, or you don't. What we might say to parents is tell you what. We're spending about $400 per kid per course. If your kid's taking French in high school, we'll offer you a deal. If you think that's not the best option for your kid, why don't we let you take those $400 and use it to purchase an approved language opportunity that passes muster with the state that you think is a better fit for your kid? At that point, what we can start doing is giving parents a say-so and letting them start to make decisions that are going to create more awareness of cost and more awareness of quality up and down the K-12 system. Where would the seeds of these changes actually be planted? Would it be at a local school board level or more on a federal level? Ultimately, I think it's a question of working in concert. There are state laws that make these things difficult to do today. There's certainly federal cover, which is essential if state leaders or local leaders are to drive forward on rethinking systems. But the real authority, the real power to make these changes ultimately exists with school boards and local superintendents. So your advice to parents who would like to see change would be what? You know, I think it's got to be a two-track effort. I think one is pursue change locally, engage in organizations in your community, make your voice heard, attend school board meetings. But a second is recognize that local districts are very much constrained by state and federal policy. So it's also a question of more conventional political organizing. Is there a political party, a political advocacy group that are really bringing pressure to bear on state legislators and on the governor? Parents who take this seriously ought to try to be engaged in both of those kinds of efforts. Frederick Hess, resident scholar and director of education policies at the American Enterprise Institute. Frederick, where can people learn more online? They can check out our website at aei.org. And they can also visit my blog at Education Week at Rick Hess Straight Up. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us on InfoTrack. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And for InfoTrack, I'm Roy Mackey. Next, before you take another bite, what's in that food you're eating? The shocking answers might surprise you. And they're coming up. Don't go away. InfoTrack will be back right after this.